0: Hello, welcome to Strike Up the Conversation on Post Show Recap, a podcast bringing you coverage of the labor disputes happening now in television and film. I'm Dr. Amanda, and I'm your host for these conversations. We have a great conversation in store for you today with labor activist Paul Prescott. But before we get to that, I am joined by a man who knows how to come to the bargaining table. But more importantly, he knows not to put your hands on that table. It is the great Josh Wiggler.
1: You know what? If it takes hands on the table to get this thing done, Amanda... Uh, who am I to take Just that off once. the table? Just, Just this once. As
0: once. Don't abuse it. Once. Just this yes. once. You can put hands on the table. Um, Josh, thanks so much for joining me today. You know, um, we have some news in, there's been some development in the ongoing situation with the WGA and the AMPTP.
1: They had a conversation. Oh my God. Uh, they had a
0: conversation about having a conversation. Can you
1: believe that that's that's where we are uh, at this point in the strikes? What are, what are we at? Uh, week thirteen, I think, as yes. we're recording this. If I'm getting if I'm getting that right. And last week, uh, Amanda and I are recording this on Monday, August seventh. Um, last week, last Friday, there was uh, a sit down about continued sit downs uh, mm-hmm. initiated uh, i believe by the AMPTP uh, to have these conversations with the WGA uh, and didn't amount to all that much.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So on Friday, August 4th, uh, the AMPTP, which has um, heretofore been the sort of unwilling party, the party that was not coming to the table, Josh, hands or otherwise, they agreed to have a sit down with the WGA Um I believe it was a meeting that involved the AMPTP president, Carol Lambertini and the WGA chief negotiator, Ellen Stutzman, and legal counsel, Tony Siegel. And leading up to that, there was some cautious optimism about what this could mean. You know, obviously talking is better than not talking, um, but it seems like at least a couple of items from that meeting did not go as well as some of us had hoped.
1: No. Um, I mean, I was surprised to even see the headlines um, that this meeting was taking place, which I don't know what that says about, like, you know, sort of my optimism about the situation. Um, But to see that this conversation, that this idea that maybe we could resume negotiations happening here in August was shocking to me, uh, frankly. Um, But there was then this sort of like nagging part of me that was going to be like, is this just optics? Is this just going to be an optical illusion? here um and i think the the wga statement to their members um coming out of this meeting makes it sound like there is still uh you know that there is some willingness to engage on certain issues like i think ai was a conversation mm-hmm. that the amptp were willing to have certain things like um uh like participation in uh profit sharing and revenue sharing it sounds like that was not a conversation they were willing to renegotiate yeah. or re-enter, or the writer's room re-evaluating mm-hmm. that. It didn't sound like that was a conversation they were willing to have. Um, but, you know, uh, gosh, this is the bare minimum, like some points for like some measure of willing to move the ball down. the field. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I think, I think that the, you know, the upside of this is we're probably still on a bit of a long road. It's not entirely surprising that we're seeing the first gestures of trying to come together again. I think like, you know, when the strike was first declared back on May 1st, some of the optimistic estimates of how long this would last were saying, you know, maybe in October, November we'll be wrapping things up and getting back to work. If, they're going to get back to work this fall. They have to start talking, right? People yeah. have to start having a conversation um, with SAG. Also, SAG-AFTRA also striking right now. It's um, you know it makes this a tougher road. The language from the AMPTP suggests that they that things are still too hot with with SAG. So it makes sense that they're starting this uh, gesture of goodwill with the WGA. But I think that this initial talk um you know is probably means that there's going to be more of this to come but we're still not very close to any sort of agreement and we're not close to getting yeah. people back to work
1: i did send you uh i think it was deadline that reported it first and i sent you the article and i think it was on like the tuesday or the wednesday that we posted the michael Chernus yeah. interview it was like amanda are we going to have to cancel strike up the the po- strike up the conversation <laughs> the podcast because mm. this strike is about to resolve this
0: week? Yeah, is well a- I <laughs> thought it was my interview with with Ternus really changed the hearts and minds of that was I know, my <laughs> work here is done. My work here. No, no. well this is you the know the work
1: continues. Of, the work continues.
0: Well, of course, you know, we would love to have this wrapped up uh, quickly. We do have some great content planned for you on strike up the conversation to help you understand everything that's going on as long as it's going on. And, you know, we hope that, that both sides can come to an agreement, but you'll want to stay tuned for everything that we're doing here. In the meantime, make sure you subscribe to the podcast by using our RSS feed, postshowrecaps.com slash strike, when you search by URL in your podcast player of choice that's posharecaps.com slash strike when you search by url on your podcast player um so you know this is a new podcast and we're talking about really important subject matter. so subscribing and if you're so inclined rating will really help people find us it looks like we've got a little more road ahead of us and um like i said i i'm excited for you to hear some of the episodes that we have in store um but i'm really excited for you to hear my interview with paul prescott
1: yeah so can you fill us in on what we are getting into today I know you've already done the interview so uh can you can you tee us up because I have not listened to it yet and I'm really excited to
0: oh okay well I would love to so Paul Prescott is a um is a Jacobin contributor and a longtime union activist and Paul and I had a great conversation where um he gave uh, some perspective on the labor movement in the United States Historic with a historical look also talked a lot about um, where we are right now in the labor movement and some of the Uh, important victories that are happening for organized labor right now. He talked about what striking means as a tactic and how public opinion of labor has changed over time. So I think that this is really good context for us to understand what's happening right now with the entertainment guilds. I was just on Twitter before hopping on this podcast seeing footage of the flight attendance union which is striking over which has joined the wga and the uh, sag aftra uh, in solidarity picketing netflix so there's you know there's this is part of a broader movement here obviously uh, labor and um exploitation is not something that is unique to hollywood by any means um There's a lot of great language coming out. I reposted something that was uh, our great friend, um, Connor Roy, the great Alan Ruck, had some really rousing words that um, are going around on social media. Gosh,
1: that's some cognitive dissonance uh, to go from, I'm a billionaire, Mm -hmm. so, you know, (laughs) to like fighting the billionaires. It's a big switch.
0: Um, Yeah, I mean, this is is about working people. It's not just about... uh, Glitzy Hollywood stars. Um, so Paul brings a great perspective talking about uh, labor projects that he's been involved with, including um, as a public school teacher, standing in solidarity with nurses and hospital workers, and recently working for the Teamsters and being part of the UPS contract negotiations. So um, really looking forward to everybody checking that out and hearing all of uh, the great stuff that Paul has to say. Um, so keep up with everything that we're doing on Strike Up the Conversation by subscribing and you can follow me on twitter or at x or whatever oh, they're calling it now, yeah. now i know find me on social media where i am at dr amanda r. r something close to that
1: cool sounds fun i'm at rand howard wherever you can find me but i'm just lurking i'm just trying to see you. i'm just trying to figure out where i am from any I'm, I'm like scrolling through threads i'm like is anyone here did you all leave
0: <laughs> i think everyone left
1: i think you all left
0: it is my pleasure today to introduce our guest to the show, Paul Prescott. Paul is a Jacobin contributing editor and a union activist who's been working with the Teamsters for a Democratic Union, um, which has been recently much in the news for their negotiations with UPS. In fact, Paul personally worked on the UPS contract campaign. He has a long history of of community organizing in the city of Philadelphia, going back to his time as a student at Temple University, where he stood in solidarity with Temple Hospital nurses and other union workers. In 2020, he worked with local labor unions to pass the Essential Worker Protection Act, which prevents employers from retaliating against workers who report violations of COVID-19 safety guidelines. Uh, Welcome to the podcast, Paul.
2: Thanks. It's great to be here.
0: Um, well, I'm so glad that you agreed to come on with us. I actually came to know you, Paul, because uh, my husband worked for uh, your campaign uh, bid for Pennsylvania State Senate and um, had a really positive experience with that. So it's great to get a chance to sit down and talk with you.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for inviting me on.
0: Great. Um Could you give us your background in union organizing organizing and how you first became involved?
2: Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, I think if we really want to go to its roots, um, uh, there is some of it in my family history. Um, My father's from Barbados in the Caribbean. Um, People should go if they haven't been before. Um, But, you know, growing up, I used to spend a lot of time there in the summer. My father was also a teacher. So, you know, he had that extra time off. Um, so, uh, many people in my family on that side were involved with the Barbados labor party. Of course, in this country, we do not have a labor party, but it's very common. Most places in the world have a specific labor party and we're union activists. So I think that kind of planted the seed, although, you know, as a little kid, I wasn't thinking about that too much, but, um, and kind of over time I got, became interested in political issues. I mean, I was only 12 years old at the time, but the Iraq war in 2003, uh, kind of had a big impact on me and I started trying to pay attention and I think by the time I um, went to uh, Temple University in Philadelphia, uh, you know I was I was starting to read a lot and get into things and it was kind of like thinking about how, how do we change society, how do we make things better and it was really perfect timing because my freshman year, which was 2009, 2010, um, the temple Hospital nurses went on strike and I got involved in a student labor, Solidarity um, organization on campus, um, and through that, I kind of got involved in supporting the strike. So, as students, you know, we were trying to pressure the administration, and I really lucked out with the timing because that year, you know, that was right after the Great Recession, and you know, recessions are always hard times for unions. It's hard to go on the offensive during a recession for mm-hmm. various reasons. Um, you know, that year, there was like a record low number of strikes in the country that entire year, I think it was something like 20 or 30. And that strike was one of them. And it was a really successful strike. Um, There's a great kind of community support angle. And, you know, it was also kind of powerful for me seeing that, you know, they, of course, were fighting over wages and benefits. But um, actually, the biggest thing they were fighting over was the right to advocate for their patients, you know, Temple Hospital was trying to impose this gag rule, um, bring that, prevent them from speaking out. They were fighting for safe staffing levels in the hospitals. Um, so that was kind of powerful for me and, you know, they won the strike. It was very successful. And that was sort of like, you know, I was hooked from then on. It was, mm-hmm. it was a very clear real life example of like, this is how ordinary people can like make change in a really impactful way. Um, so then from then on, you know, I, I was involved on campus with uh, unions, um, you know, just got involved in a lot of different things. And then I, you know, I started teaching in the public school district in around 2015. So I became a union member finally then in the teachers union and was very active. Um, but I really think, you know, I think having that positive experience with that strike was big. And, and you know, we'll probably get to this more later. I mean, that kind of just speaks to, you know, in periods when there are, low numbers of strikes and not a lot of unions, it just, it's kind of a cycle where it makes it harder for more people to know about unions and get involved. Um, but that that's the short story, I guess.
0: Right. Um, so there's a lot of great stuff there that I, I want to get back to. Um, but that sounds like an amazing victory for, for nurses back, um, at that time, now you're working with Teamsters for a Democratic Union, and they're they've been in the midst of negotiations with UPS. And um, I know that that contract that um that it hasn't been the deal hasn't been completed yet, but it's been I in the press that I'm seeing mostly promoted as a great victory for the union. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about what was at stake with that dispute and uh, what your role has been working with the uh, with the Teamsters.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and yeah, right now there's a they call it a tentative agreement, um, and so now workers have to vote. They're going to be voting over these next three weeks. Um, but yeah, I mean there was a lot at stake. I mean I'll start with this UPS. There's 340,000 workers at UPS across the country, um, so they're actually the largest unionized employer in the country. So this was the largest private sector contract in the country. Um, I also think what's powerful about it is it's truly national in scope. I mean, no matter if you're in Manhattan or Los Angeles or like a small town in Montana, UPS has a presence and there are UPS workers. Um, They've also found that 6% of the country's GDP moves through UPS every single day. Um, Wow. And that obviously only just grew during COVID. I mean, we were all at home ordering shit we don't need you know and (laughs) Mm
0: -hmm. so UPS
2: grew um and you know and I think that also set the stage as well because of course work UPS workers you know they didn't have the option to work from home they put their lives on the line um during that so you know really everything was at stake and like um there were a lot of wins that were broken through so um one of the big things that was top of mind was um what's called two-tier and um I I don't know if this is present in the you know entertainment industry or film or writers Mm. um if it's not now i mean they're probably going to try to make it happen but two tier has been a trend that's growing um you know in labor uh across the country so that basically what that meant was in 2018 in that contract they imposed a second tier of driver so people hired after that date you know doing the same work as other drivers but they're just on a totally different wage scale that's lower and it obviously it's horrible on many reasons. First of all, it's just not fair. It also creates resentment. I mean, you're like, yeah, why yeah. am I getting paid this little, and the guy next to me is getting paid more? So it divides the union. You know, it's it was it's just bad on all levels. So that was like goal number one was getting rid of two tier. And And Paul, how do they
0: justify the distinction between tiers? If you're saying like people are basically doing the same job, they have like the same concerns. How does UPS, like how does an employer create that kind of splitting of the workforce?
2: Yeah. I mean, there really is no, there's no (laughs) justification. I mean, they just want to do it. And it's obvious why they Mm want to do it because they're going to save money, but there's no justification. And to be clear, you know, we're not talking about seniority. It's one thing where it's like, okay, we have a wage progression. And when you work so many years, you get that this is a totally different thing. So like, under a two tier, it's like someone working 20 years under the old tier is going to make way more than someone working 20 years on the lower tier. Um, so there, there is no justification. I mean, it's just purely they, they, if they can get away with it, they're going to try to do it. Um, and you know, UPS, it only just happened in 2018. But this has been present And like auto companies, for example, for a long time, Mm -hmm. Um, they're also trying to get rid of that. Um, And that was a success. So we got rid of two tier. Two tier is gone um, for the future. Um, You know, another thing people probably heard about on the news was with air conditioning. So believe it or not, you know, your friendly UPS uh, package car driver, there's no air conditioning in those trucks. Um, And it's been a lot of issues over the years people dying of heat stroke. Um, there was kind of a viral video going around. Um, someone had like one of those ring cameras and they showed a UPS driver who was like fainting delivering. Um, so we got, you know, an agreement that's going to gradually Put air conditioning in the trucks. Wow! Over I mean, time. this
0: is in the context of record-breaking heat waves happening on a yeah. regular basis, um, where you know our healthcare system, emergency rooms in Arizona, are mm-hmm. overwhelmed with heat stroke cases, um, and having people in conditions where they basically have no choice but to be out in that you know medically right. unsafe heat all day. Um, that's really, I mean, that's such an important victory, and it's kind of amazing that they have been working under those conditions.
2: Right. And you know, one thing to think about, um, and you know, it's bad enough in Philly in the summer, but think about Arizona, yeah. Texas. Um, you know, if it's hundred degrees outside, the back of the package car truck where they're spending a lot of time is like 130, 140. So it's pretty it's it's insane. But um we got a big win on that. Um another huge one was uh with the part timers at UPS. So most people don't know this because, you know, we only see the UPS drivers delivering trucks, but the majority of the UPS workforce are actually part timers who work in warehouses. Hmm. So they sort packages, they load them on the trucks, and most of them are kept part time deliberately by the company. There's no real reason they have to be part time, but the company keeps them that. And even though they are in the same union, they make really low wages. Um, So, you know, we're talking around 15, 16 an hour um, and you know, I mean, I know there's been demands for 15 an hour as a minimum wage over time, but, but that's, that's been not re- for
0: like 10 years. Yeah. It's been- and, that's not <laughs> yeah. A
2: good, and it's not a good yeah. wage. I mean, yeah. that's a minimum. So it's like mm-hmm. being in a union, uh, company all the GPS, you shouldn't be making that. So that was another huge goal was really raising those, um, uh, wages for part-timers. And that was also, I think, I think we can say we really won big on that. Um, it kind of varies across the country. It's a little bit complicated, but just in Philly, to give an example, if this contract is ratified, you know, part-timers in Philadelphia at UPS are going to be making now $25 an hour. Um, so that's a huge yeah. jump. Um, and then related to that, we wanted to create more full-time jobs in the warehouses. Again, the only reason they have it part-time is from UPS's point of view, then you don't have to pay in as much into benefits um, mm-hmm. and all that sort of thing as a, for full-timers. So, we got an agreement to create, you know, over the life of this contract, so five years, um, 7,500 new full time jobs th- that are in the warehouses. Um, so, that was a huge one. Um, and I could keep going and going. An- forced overtime, you know, mm-hmm. people don't know this, but at UPS, um, they essentially were able to force you in on your day off. Now, you would get paid overtime for it, but you basically could not refuse. Um, and, you know, just destroys family life, um, as one would expect. Um, so we got rid of that. Um, they called force six punch, um, cameras, you know, they were installing cameras in the trucks to monitor every single move Mm -hmm. and use that to discipline. We got them to, um, you know, remove the cameras. You can't use them for discipline. Um, so again, I mean, workers have to vote on it, but Mm -hmm. it really was, I think a breakthrough deal. And, you know, it kind of has, um, Rever- reverberations beyond UPS. I think many unions, maybe many workers were watching this fight. Um, if you think about Amazon, yeah, you know, I, this kind of helps, I think, set the stage for trying to organize Amazon and start raising standards in the logistics industry. Um, right? So I think a lot was at stake. I mean, you know, it's rare that you're going to get a perfect contract. Um, not every single thing was one Mm -hmm. outright, but, um, you know, a lot of huge gains. It was kind of like night and day comparing this contract with the last one in in 2018.
0: Well, incredible work on that and good luck with the final stages of reaching an agreement. And, you know, one of the things that I saw in the news was that, you know, this, this, um, this stalemate was sort of resolved in part, at least by the impending threat of a strike And, um, you know, and I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how strikes have, you know, like historically been used as a tool of organized labor. You know, you mentioned that you have this connection to the temple nurses from your time as an undergrad. And, you know, I think, for example, like when I think about. I work, I work partially in healthcare. And when I think about the nurses that I know or the teachers that I know, like these are really people who the last thing they want to do is strike. Like the last thing they want to do is leave their students behind or leave their patients behind. So it's like a very serious thing that unions don't take lightly. Um, Like what's the importance of having this as a tool in these uh, labor negotiations?
2: Yeah. I mean, it really is it's not the only tool, but it is the most important tool. Um, you know, it, it's really the only leverage essentially you have. And I, I would argue, I mean, I think everything we've won as unions as working people has come being able to strike for it. Cause at the end of the day, we know, you know, like we're not going to make progress by writing a nicely worded letter and they're just going to see the light, you know, this is essentially as working people, like really the only thing you have, we don't have a lot of money. We don't have a ton of resources, but, they, they depend on our, our labor. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, what we talk about a lot is like having a credible strike threat. So you don't always have to use it. I mean, here at UPS, um, ultimately, you know, we did not strike. But UPS believed that we would strike. And we were mm-hmm. very clear that, you know, we are prepared to. And um, people might have seen in the news, um, they did this thing called practice picketing. So it wasn't a strike. It wasn't an actual work stoppage. But all across the country, they were picketing as a practice run and Mm -hmm. kind of, and the company's looking at that and they're saying like, you know, these people are serious and they probably made a calculation that at the end of the day, it's going to be cheaper to give into the demands than to go through a strike. Um, so, you know, I think having that preparation and being willing to strike is really important. And I think one issue over time in the labor movement, I wouldn't say this is like the only reason labor has declined, but there's just been this increasingly increasing unwillingness to strike or even prepare mm. for one. Mm-hmm. And, you know, someone used this phrase to describe it as like the strike is got weaponized against the members instead of the company. Meaning mm-hmm. the whole mindset sometimes of unions is like, oh, you don't want to strike like and they fear monger to members like we can't strike. And again, of course, it's something to take seriously. You know, you don't take it lightly. Um, but you know, if you start weaponizing it against workers about you know we can't strike, don't ever even think about it, the company's going to win because um, they know you know we're not going right. to use that ultimate leverage point. So I think that's really important, and I think we're starting to see a slow uptick of strikes. Um, and I know everything before COVID nineteen is like a black mm-hmm.
0: hole, yeah. but
2: if you remember October of twenty nineteen, they called it Striketober, or maybe mm-hmm. it was twenty eighteen, yeah. We were starting to see, it was John Deere, Kellogg's, oh. IATSE almost mm-hmm. went on strike. So there was this kind of gathering momentum. And I think we've kind of picked up where that's left off. So of course we have Screen Actors Guild, Writers Guild, almost with UPS. Mm-hmm. In a month, the auto workers at Ford, General Motors and Chrysler, which is now called Stellantis, apparently. Oh um, wow, I had I, no I missed that memo. Yeah. Um, you know, they're preparing for a possible strike. Um, So, you know, it's important. Again, you don't have to use it every time. It's not something to be taken lightly. But I think if you're not prepared to as a union, you're really not maximizing the leverage.
0: Hmm. Um, So, I mean, this is a place where on, you know, on post-show recaps, we don't usually talk about labor or politics or any of these things. So this is not a conversation that, you know, we're often engaged in. But the current labor disputes in Hollywood I think that they provide this real opportunity to bring like a public, a very you know, public face mm-hmm. to some of these issues. Um, and so, you know, for us, it's like been an opportunity to give our listeners some context of, um, you know, what's going on with WGA and what's going on with SAG-AFTRA. Um but as somebody who's like been in the trenches of organized labor for years, like what does the visibility of these strikes mean to the movement as a whole? Does it mean anything? Like, is this something that's just more of like a pop culture, like blip in, you know, or, or, or does this have any kind of material value to the labor movement more broadly?
2: Yeah, I think it is important, you know, um, Because I think a lot of these corporations, like ultimately they care about their profits. We know that's like the bottom line for them. But I think they do care about their public image. And I think they know that there is a connection between their public image and their profits for their shareholders. Um, And oftentimes in disputes, there is a calculation that goes on, especially in certain industries, um, uh, you know, especially like, like you mentioned, nurses and teachers, mm-hmm. to name a good example. Um, in every dispute or strike, there's always a the question of like, where is the public going to land? And if the public is clearly on the worker's side, that's a huge amount of leverage. And that, that sometimes is the dividing line between whether, you know, a company's going to settle or not. But if they're able to play the public off of those workers, you know, that's going to give the company an upper hand. Um, so I do think it actually does matter in a material way. Um, and you know we're kind of at this really interesting moment where the public opinion of unions is at its highest since probably like the nineteen fifties,
0: yeah, now, in the nineteen yeah.
2: fifties we had thirty five percent of American workers in unions, so unlike then we're only at ten percent now um in total, but public opinion is really high and supportive of labor um for, I think, for a variety of reasons. Um, and, you know, it's something we actually were working on at, in the teams was at UPS, you know, winning over the public, um, actually talking to customers of, you know, high volume customers of UPS drivers, getting them on their side. And, you know, if it did come down to a strike, that was going to be really important. Um, and there was kind of a historical uh, precedence to that. You know, the last UPS strike was in 1997 and UPS wanted Bill Clinton to you know, issue an injunction against the union and intervene. And it's pretty clear the reason he didn't was that UPS workers at the time, you know, the public supported them around mm-hmm. like 65%. Um, and, you know, for that, most politicians, that kind of thing matters. Um, so I think, it, it, you know, it is, we're in this moment right now where like unions are sexy and they're like, the yeah. thing. and I think it was already happening, but, you know, it helps that you have like now movie stars that, the public knows and likes um, also on strike. I think it does kind of just help the overall zeitgeist. I mean, we could, we could debate about whether it should be that way, but it just, you know, mm-hmm. I saw a cool picture with uh, Mark Wahlberg with Sean O'Brien, the uh, team's <laughs> Sys president. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're both like classic Boston Irish guys. Uh-huh. Um, so um, yeah, I think it definitely helps. And like, I hope this kind of moment continues Um with the public being on union side, because it, it doesn't always shake out that way. You know, I mean, what I think the wealthy are trying to bank on is resentment for someone to say, well, look at, you know, those union workers have that. They're making more than me. They have better health benefits. Why should I support them? I don't have that. Um, so that's what they want to happen. But it helps when the public actually is is on union side
0: yeah we've definitely seen that tactic used by the alliance of motion picture and television producers of trying to paint the writers and the actors as sort of like petulant entitled children and try to turn public opinion against them um yeah so i was doing some research going into this paul for our conversation and um you know, Gallup polling shows exactly what you said that uh, the percent approval, the popularity of unions is on a rise. It's the highest it's been since 1965. So, right now, 71% of Americans approve of unions. And just 10 years ago, it was as low as 48%. Mm. So, with wow. less than half of Americans um, having a, an approval. Of labor unions. So that's on the uptick, which I think is great news for the movement. But then like slightly less encouraging <laughs> is if you look at the actual union membership, which is mm-hmm. around 10 percent, um, like which is, you know, which is 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 uh, you know, it's it hasn't been dropping pre- precipitously, but it is at a relative low. So there's this mismatch between growing popularity of unions, but the vast majority of American workers, um, do not belong to a union. Like, what do you think accounts for, um, that, that mismatch? And like, I just wonder if you could say a little bit about how, and maybe why union membership has been declining over such a long time.
2: Yeah. And you know, that mismatch, it's not entirely surprising just knowing that, um, you know, even the pro-union sentiment is there. Getting to a high union density is going to take a lot of organizing and a lot of time. Mm-hmm. Um, and in terms of why it's that way, you know, a, a few factors. I mean, one of them we just have to look at are the labor law in this country is so tilted against workers. Um, mm-hmm. It is extremely, extremely difficult to form a union. Um, you know, basically the companies can do whatever they want essentially to bust a union, even though there are some laws in the books, it's very hard to enforce, you know, we've defunded the national labor relations board all that sort of thing. So, I mean, labor law makes it extremely hard and, you know, it's just tilted in the boss's favor. So many, many workers try, but they, they can't because of various reasons. Um, so I think that's, that's one thing, um, to think about, you know, also what a lot of people don't realize, um, you know, you can win a union and then the hard part is winning the first contract. And, you know, companies have all kinds of tactics. They can essentially stall and stall and stall before winning a contract. And after a certain amount of time, they can launch what is called a decertification drive to basically get rid of the union after a certain amount of time. Now, if you're a worker and you're like, I joined a union to get a contract and you're a year in and it doesn't seem like there's any progress, because the company's stalling, you know, they have all the things they can use at their disposal. But, you know, for an average worker, it's like, well, what the hell am I paying dues for mm-hmm. um, if we didn't get a contract yet? So maybe I will, you know, vote to decertify. So that kind of thing happens all the time. Um, so it, it's, it's very hard. And it, it's really not an easy answer of how to get over that roadblock. Uh, I mean, reforming labor law is a big one, but it's kind of a chicken and egg problem, because yeah. I think you know, the, the labor laws we do have were formed from a mass upsurge of workers organizing to kind of force this breakthrough. So I it's almost like this chicken and egg of, I think we need a mass labor movement to change labor law, but because we don't have good labor law, it's hard to form mm. a mess. So I, I don't know when that breakthrough is going to happen. Um, but that that is one issue. Another one is that, you know, the, the first unions formed in the, you know, industrial mass production, you know, Auto work, electrical work, um, Mm -hmm. transportation, rubber, all that kind of, you know, factory steel, steel work, um, that kind of factory work. So one problem is, I mean, they literally just physically have removed the jobs that have unions. Um, I mean, outsourcing globalization. So, I mean, they've moved, you know, jobs, these kind of manufacturing jobs that were common all over the globe to find the lowest wages you know, or they've kind of decentralized. So they kind of figured out that, wow, if we have all these industrial workers crammed (laughs) in the cities, it actually makes it easier to organize and easier to like identify with the working class. So when they haven't shipped stuff overseas, they've moved it out to the suburbs, uh, you know, very rural areas. Um, But that's a big thing. I mean, it's just sort of like, well, yeah, if you physically remove the factory that had union workers, like that, that density is going to go down. Um, And that's why you've seen this shift where today, if you look at the public sector, you know, Mm -hmm. teachers, uh, I mean, all kinds of stuff, sanitation workers, like workers, city workers, um, nurses in some cases, they actually do have relatively high density still. But yeah, it's
0: it's five times higher union membership in the public sector. So it's like 33% Versus 6% in the private yeah. sector, sort of just highlighting how rare and challenging it is to form private right. sector unions.
2: Yeah. So, you know, and and then also, I mean, there was kind of a concerted political attack. I mean, I think there was a relatively brief moment of time. I mean, roughly like early 40s to mid mm-hmm. 60s, where I think, you know, the government you know, kind of tolerated unions and like they—they essentially we have to live with them. And then you know, soon there was this very conservative attack. I mean, you can trace it to Ronald Reagan. I mean, some people kind of mark yeah. 1980 as this turning point. But you know, it, it was a different strategy. It was more so of saying like, no, we're going to actually try to break these unions. And the corporate world actually got organized. They actually like formed their own. Mm-hmm. Organizations across sectors, just like workers, try to do that. You know, they actually got more organized, and we're like, you know what? We're actually going to try to push back. And um, and and unfortunately, they have a lot more resources to do mm. so. Um, so you know, all that I think was happening at once. You know, you combine yeah. deindustrialization, you combine our labor law, you combine the the attack from you know corporations in a much more coordinated manner. Um, and that kind of leads to where we are today. Yeah. Um, you, you
0: mentioned Ronald yeah. Reagan, Paul. You want to hear something supremely ironic?
2: Yeah. <laughs> Ronald
0: Reagan, former president of the Screen Actors right. Guild. Yes.
2: <laughs> it's yeah, it's incredible irony, and, and mm-hmm. I think I read that the last strike, industry-wide strike, was he was. Yes, he was president
0: during the last time that coincidentally the writers and the actors were on strike at the same time. Um, But that was in the 1960s um so i mean it's it's really uh it's really interesting yes sag and the dga um you know so the directors guild of america and i'm not sure when the writers guild unionized but they're pretty um old and durable unions Mm -hmm. emerging in the 1930s and um and so um i mean i think that that's really interesting we talk about um how the private sector is so sparse in terms Mm -hmm. of unionization. I think that um, these guilds represent some of the strongest and most durable labor unions uh, we have in our country.
2: Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, and and some of these are iconic, like United Auto Workers. I Mm -hmm. mean, they're iconic. Teamsters are, um, you know, so yeah, they're, they're still around, but um, you know, it's just, Numbers wise, smaller, especially in proportion to the US mm-hmm. population, but um, steel workers, all, all this kind of thing, like, um, you know, these unions still exist. And, you know, there's nothing, you know, sometimes people talk about it as if it's like, just an inevitable fact of history that those old unions won't survive in the 21st century or grow again. And I don't think that's true. I, there's nothing inherent that says they can't beginning t- to grow again. And I mean, I think you know, without getting too much into the weeds, but within the Teamsters and the Auto Workers, right now, for example, there's actually these really dynamic reform efforts where, you know, activists in the union have actually formed slates and challenged the leadership and kind of like won against the old guard, for lack of a better term, and are bringing a lot more energy. I and mean, I think that's why this UPS fight was so different in 2018. Mm-hmm. We actually had a new leadership elected two years ago. Auto workers is the same thing. A new leadership actually shocked themselves and won um, a year ago. They didn't actually expect to win. And now they're going to these fights. So, again, there's nothing just, like, inevitable that it's just going to be this, like, terminal decline. And I think right mm-hmm. now we're seeing this little uptick in activity that could turn into something bigger.
0: Yeah. Do you, Do you think, Paul, that the positive public opinion or, like, having these conversations and raising this – Awareness um, helps give union workers, um, you know, kind of the helps like give them like the moral authority to like follow through with these strikes and like and as you mentioned, like just having those strikes helps build power. Like, is this sort of like a perpetuating cycle that could mark, you know, a positive upturn for labor?
2: Yeah, I I think and I I hope so, and because that's what we need to happen. And I think historically, you know, and not that history repeats itself exactly, but what we've seen in history, in U.S. history is actually the way unions have grown. It actually hasn't been this gradual step by step. You've kind of seen these explosive waves. So like in the 30s, it was just this Mm -hmm. huge wave and a rush. And all of a sudden, in a few years, the major industries were organized. In the 60s, we saw the same with public sector workers. It was like you could literally like trace four or five years and it was this kind of explosion of activity. Now, you know, I don't have a crystal ball. I don't know if it's going to happen that way. But you want to start seeing different sectors interact with each other. And I think we're starting to see that. I mean, one of the best moments during this UPS contract was, you know, we they did a practice picket in Newark. And then those same Teamsters went to picket lines that were being formed at Amazon, which the Teamsters are also trying to organize. Mm-hmm. You know, you saw the UAW, the auto workers right now. I mean, like I said, they're trying to eliminate two-tier And their negotiations coming up in September, and I think the fact that we beat that has inspired them. Um, You know, the I think the Screen Actors Guild and the Writers Guild. Mm -hmm. You know, I think a lot of UPS workers were talking about it. Like a lot of workers seem to be on strike, so it is this kind of moment. And I think that's how it's going to have to happen. Um, And you know, I think when workers see other workers go on strike and win, it helps them feel confident.
0: And maybe just like setting a standard for like how workers expect to be treated. Like, right. It's like if you see that somebody from UPS is, you know, getting higher wages or having better working conditions and you're at Amazon, you'll live and go somewhere else. Or you'll say, this isn't right. I demand better. Like, so I think that, that those wins, like hopefully they are inspirational and they also, you know, well, we know that they scare the corporations because they, you know, they don't want to see anything eat into their profits. But if Mm -hmm. we demand better, if workers demand better, um, you know, eventually it's going to be hard to do business in the U S if you can't like meet those expectations.
2: Yeah. And it's funny you mentioned that just today, an article came out about Amazon workers talking about the UPS contract Mm -hmm. and someone in Philadelphia was saying like, whereas they make 19 an hour there, they're all like shocked to hear that now in Philly, they're going to be starting out. 25 an hour you know and that kind of makes the case of like well you know why did that happen that happens because they had a union Mm
0: -hmm. and we don't
2: you know maybe that's something we want to do Um, so you know that's why I think there was a lot of uh, stakes in this UPS contract beyond UPS because I think there was very clear idea that Amazon workers will be watching and like if we are successful here it could kind of be a springboard to Amazon and and other uh, logistics companies
0: um So, you know, some of the things in the Hollywood uh, labor disputes, like, might be kind of more specific to the entertainment industry, but there are a lot of issues that I think are more universal for all types of workers. So, um, you know, some of their demands have to do with earnings to keep up with inflation, uh, contributions to health and retirement funds, more transparency about performance metrics. Um, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about, like, what are some of the common things that you see like that like what are some of the common points that maybe you know are are you know concerns of all unions outside of entertainment.
2: Yeah and it is interesting. It's like you it really is essentially the same issues everywhere. I mean it, mm-hmm. it could be as diverse workforce as like iron workers compared to secretaries. And then like yeah it's obviously a very different job but like the same kinds of issues always come up and and usually the companies kind of behave the same way, right. um, So yeah, and I think especially in this moment, I mean, thinking about inflation, I mean it it really has been crazy. And I know they're saying inflation is coming down, maybe it is a little bit, but um, like we all know, going to the grocery store and mm-hmm. like shrinkflation, which really pisses me off. Like you know, we just all know that the money's going, not going as far. So. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, and it's at the same time, and this is happening across the industry, we're seeing CEO pay. It's just like going off the charts. Right. All these companies are doing stock buyback. So like, you know, it's one thing to say like, well, we're using our profits to invest in the company and like, you know, making more efficient or make improvements. Like it's one thing if you say that, but most of the times they're literally just using profits to buy back their own um, stock and then pay out bonuses. I mean, it's really as simple as wow. that. I mean, just to give an incredible example, last year alone, UPS made $13 billion in profit. And that's, so that's $13 billion. That's after paying its 340,000 workers and benefits, after all expenses, $13 billion in profit. So, you know, there's just a clear argument that that pay should be going. I mean, to the you uh, you
0: obviously can't do that without drivers and without, you know, ha- yes. and without people working in your warehouses, like you obviously are making that right. money on the backs of workers.
2: Yeah. And it's like, you know, especially in this inflationary moment, it's like, again, I mean, the wage increases should be big and, you know, and, and I'll, I'll say this, like the drivers now at UPS after the, if this contract's ratified, you know, once they reach top rate, they're going to be making about a hundred thousand a year. And, you know, and that's great. And I know some people might be like, wow, that's crazy. But I think we should get out of the mindset that that should be crazy. It's like, yeah. again, when you think about inflation now, it's like, okay, a 100,000, you can live a good life and take care of your family and like, you know, pay for school, although even still, that's not mm-hmm. enough to pay for. Right, right? But, you know, that should be the standard. And it's just like, why the hell do they not deserve that? And meanwhile, the shareholder should just The standard keep it shouldn't off.
0: be that like every working person is, you know, like one financial emergency exactly, yeah. away from ruin. Like, you know, I mean, and that's, and I think that that's become the expectation, right? That like most people have to live paycheck to paycheck and can't right. save for retirement and can't contribute to college funds and do all of this stuff. That working people should be basically, you know, kept in poverty, right? Instead of right. having people who are working full time being able to, you know, have a stable financial life.
2: Right. Yeah, exactly. And, um, and again, what counts as stable now, if we're looking at wage levels, Mm -hmm. it just has to be a lot higher because Mm -hmm. of what the inflation is. Um, so that, that's common. Um, you know, just this gap between profits and wages and and inflation. Um, you know, what you said about metrics is interesting because, you know, like what I was saying, you know, at UPS, a big issue was this surveillance, um, Mm -hmm. And these cameras and, and also like motion sensors, mm-hmm. capturing data, and that's being used to try to evaluate and discipline um, as well. I, I forget the other issue you mentioned. Um,
0: uh, so um, so healthcare and retirement funds. Yeah, yeah. right.
2: Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, even that, it's like just thinking about how our expectations are being lowered. It's like, you know, defined benefit pensions are sadly Mm -hmm. becoming increasingly rare, but it's like, they're, they're amazing. I mean, we, uh, a huge win also in the contract. um, And at UPS as well, everything at UPS is complicated. So like the pensions (laughs) are also complicated, but long story short in the South, you know, they got a thousand dollar a month increase after this contract in their pension. So, you know, now people, you know, depending how long they work, you know, they can retire and get 5,000 a month. With on their pension. And that's only, you know, that's only because it's a defined benefit pension yeah. that they and, and, negotiated. And like,
0: pensions, I think, have like kind of gotten this moment in public opinion where people really kind of think that it's this like, you know, like out of date luxury, right? Like that yeah, it's, exactly, like kind yeah. of like frivolous thing to expect that you're going to have some financial security after you retire. But like if I talk to my grandparents and like I mean like but I when you look at like the kind of golden age of American right. prosperity at least for a certain segment of the population I mean that was because people knew that they could count on this right and they could like right. retire before they got sick or became you know frail and they could you know they could have you know families that depended on them um you know that's something that like I think that when we think about cultural, Shifts that you know maybe these employers have really been able to benefit from is like making it seem like these things that used to be these like pillars of like the American lifestyle, making them seem like treats that we don't really deserve. Yeah, you know something that they've been really effective at doing.
2: Yeah, and yeah, and they're trying. And of course, this is not a private thing. This is like government program, but they're trying to do the same with Social Security. Right. You know, I think they're trying to create an expectation among younger people that like, well, there's just no way we can do that. Um, And since we're on this, I got to say, just so people know, you know how easy it is to fund social security going forward. They literally just have to lift the cap on taxable income, like $10,000 and it will be Mm -hmm. solvent. Mm -hmm. So just don't buy the hype on that. It really is an extremely simple solution. um, And they're going to try to tell you, we just can't fund it.
0: Um, there's a graph that I've seen get a lot of play on social yeah. media, Paul. Um, I think it comes from Thomas Piketty and Emmanuel Saez, Um, and it shows it plots the uh, union membership across time, I think going back to the uh, 1920s um, through the, you know, through I think 2014 when this was published. But it plots the percentage of Americans who belong to a labor union against the share of income going to the top 10%. And what that graph shows is, you know, this kind of, um, you know, there was this uh, rise around and up into the 1940s. Uh, union membership is at an all time high and um, the share of income going to the top 10% was low. And then they've just sort of split off with today um, union membership at around 10% and almost 50% of income, Going to the top ten percent, and I just feel like Bernie Sanders because I said percent so many times. Right. <laughs> um, but I guess, yeah. um, but maybe you've seen this graph, yeah. and it, you know. And so I'm wondering, like, do you think that this is a causal relationship between income inequality yeah. and union membership?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I I love that graph so much because you cannot wish for a clearer graph. I mean, it's just. And, you know, people, I guess, aren't seeing this through the podcast, but they should try to look it up. I mean, there's nothing you could not have a clear demonstration of a causal relationship. So I I absolutely think it is. I mean, and it's very simple. I mean, what are unions? If there's one thing people know about unions, it's like, yeah, they fight for higher wages, Mm. you know, for workers. So obviously, you know, to use UPS again, I mean, okay, drivers can get up to 100,000 a year. I mean, if they didn't have a union or making fifty-five thousand a year. Clearly, that money's going somewhere. Right, it's going to be going to the top. Um, so I think that it's definitely a causal relationship because I mean, that's what unions are there for—is to fight to get more of that um, share going to the workers who actually, you know, make that profit possible. Um, and you know, and this is kind of why I get, you know, I get annoyed by. Uh, more so like media institutions or even some mm. academics who act like this inequality is some mystery, like mm-hmm, why what's mm-hmm, happening mm-hmm. How could this you know what what could possibly be causing this and uh-huh. it, it's just very, very clear what is happening here mm. and I, like, think I think solutions-
0: you should, I'm thinking of the I think you should leave hot dog guy like everybody yeah. looking for who did
2: this <laughs> right right yeah and it's, <laughs> and, it's and yeah and, and also I think even more importantly, that means the solutions to me are very clear. I mean, yeah, sometimes these problems are a little bit complicated. I don't think it's like unions are the one and only answer to our problems, but it's very, very clear they're, they are a big part of the answer. You know, it's very clear. It's like, well, yeah, if you're lowering taxes on the rich dramatically and the income going to the rich is increasing. Yeah. And you want to stop that from happening. Kind of clear what you need only to do there. Eight you know?
0: slices of pizza. If somebody eats seven <laughs> slices of pizza, there's only going to be one left right. for everyone else.
2: Yeah, and that, and that, it's kind of, and I'm not, I'm going to force myself to not relitigate the 2020 and 2016 mm, mm-hmm. primary. I'm not going to go there mm-hmm. for the sake mm-hmm. of our listeners. But yeah, I don't, you know, I don't know
0: if that, I don't know if that's what people want to hear. Here. Yeah, I'm not going to
2: go back into <laughs> that. But it, you know, it, it it's increasingly becoming this problem in our politics where everyone everyone wants to act like they don't know what the solution is or what Mm. the problem is and that graph is one example of like it's pretty simple you don't Mm. you don't need 10 degrees to figure this out um and yeah i think absolutely like unions are huge the decline of union unions are this huge causal factor for this this growth in income inequality
0: right um You know, one of the things that I've uh, I've seen in my reading is that union membership is associated with, you know, greater household wealth, as we've talked about. And importantly, it appears to close the racial wealth gap to some degree. And there's reporting by the Center for American Progress on this. And can you talk a little bit about how union protections are important for marginalized groups?
2: Yeah. Yeah. This is incredibly important. Like, you know, this is something I write a lot about, you know, both contemporary and in history on these things. And um, I mean, I'll start with a fact that usually is shocking to people, but today in 2023, the demographic group that is most likely to be in a union are African American workers. And second to that are Latino workers. And third are white workers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, I think when you say the word union worker, Probably the image. Imagine of,
0: Mark Wahlberg, right? Yeah, like- right.
2: <laughs> Except older. Like, yeah. you know, I think literally the image yeah. is white, yeah. old white guy in a hard hat. And actually, mm-hmm. one day I tested this out. I went on Google Image and I typed in union worker, mm-hmm. and it literally came up old white guy in hard hat. Um, and you know, obviously these things have changed over time. But today, again, union workers are you know disproportionately black, Latino, and and woman as well. Mm-hmm so and and you know it's very important especially public sector workers have been historically and currently really important for black workers um there's all these you know statistics i could throw out there but you know income is like 25 percent higher than their counterparts not in the in the public sector um you know home ownership is way higher among Mm -hmm. black public sector workers versus private sector workers um, and again, it's not too hard to figure out why if they're getting better wages and better benefits and and working conditions. Um, and and you know this is another frustration of mine because I think a lot of times when this discussion around the racial wealth gap is discussed, mm-hmm. it usually turns to, well, we need more black business owners, or they usually talk about home ownership mm-hmm. out of context, meaning, again, if you connect the dots, the home ownership part could be improved with you know, more people being union Mm. members and having the wages, but usually unions are not talked about in this racial wealth gap or gender wealth gap. Yeah. I think they're actually, again, like really crucial part of this story. And I'll add in there, you know, it's actually always been this way, you know, um, Mm. Martin Luther King Jr. Was really extremely a big pro union advocate and he saw civil rights and labor rights as really, really tied together. Um, so, you know, it actually has been this way for a long time before now.
0: Yeah, I mean, it clearly seems like it has to be part of any serious conversation about the solutions for some of these yeah. income disparities and wealth disparities, but um, So I want to ask you a question about, um, you know, one of the topics that's coming up a lot in the, uh, discussions around the WGA and SAG-AFTRA negotiations is artificial intelligence. And it's one of the more kind of sensational issues. And we've talked to a number of, um, members of those guilds and, um, you know, there's, I think that the, the, um, the issue is, you know, slightly different for writers, um, versus performers. Um, but you, know, they, you know, what I've heard from union members is that you know most of what we're talking about are like the kitchen table issues of fair wages and job security and you know the things that we've already talked about, Paul. But um, you know that there's been this uh, reluctance to come to the table from the AMPTP and talk about AI and because the technology changes, so rapidly and because there's potentially so much At stake. It um it's definitely an important issue right now. Um, and you know, obviously AI has so many applications that we probably can't even imagine all of them today if we try. I mean, I feel like science fiction is just barely keeping up with the pace of what we're seeing happening on a day-to-day basis. Um, can you talk about how artificial intelligence and like maybe if it's not AI in particular, like we obviously know that. Uh, mechanization and automation have been big issues for unions in the past. Can you talk about how this concern might apply to people in different industries?
2: Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I guess usually this term to me is commonly known automation Mm -hmm. instead of AI. So I'm going to use the term automation, but it basically means the same thing. Mm -hmm. Um, But um, yeah, I mean, this is a huge kind of scary problem. And like you mentioned, I mean, this has actually always been a concern Mm -hmm. of labor. And one thing I neglected to mention, you know, when I talked about the reasons for decline in union membership, you know, moving jobs overseas and all that sort of thing, a big thing I neglected to mention was automation. So in many cases, it's like they kept the factory in the United States, but they automated so many of the jobs that they could eliminate half the workforce or more. So that's been, you know, it's been happening for decades and it's only accelerating right now. Um, so, it, you know, it is a big problem and I think it affects literally, I think at this point, literally everyone, um, you know, service workers, you know, mm-hmm. we may not, you know, why use them if you can use self-checkout um, mm-hmm. sort of thing. In um, UPS, you know, they are looking at trying to have automated warehouses um, sort of thing, fully automated or mostly automated. Um And, um, you know, so this is, it it is a problem and it, it really is this kind of weird contradiction in society. I mean, it actually brings up a lot of like philosophical Mm. considerations because on the one hand, I mean, like this should be great. Like, yeah, (laughs) like our lives can be easier. We don't have to do drudgery, Mm -hmm. but I think it all depends on our social system and how we arrange the automation. So, and what is kind of fascinating to me about it, it kind of inherently forces you to kind of bring up very radical demands because there's kind of two ways this can play out. I mean, it's going to play out in terms of like massive unemployment, you know, and then just a growing reserve of like permanently unemployed people or something radical of like really reducing the workday significantly Mm. without loss of pay and spreading Mm. the work around, which, you know, again, I know is, it sounds extremely radical, Mm -hmm. but it's sort of like, I don't see it's either going to play out one of those two ways right now. Um, I mean, there are limits you can put on it. So, you know, one of the parts of the agreement with UPS that was just negotiated was around technological change. So there's kind of limits if they want to institute a technological change, they have to get approval from the union. They have to meet about it. They have to discuss its impacts and all the details. So that is, you know, another thing unions can fight for is trying to at least control the automation So it doesn't result in loss of jobs. Um, But I think, and, you know, like you said, the rate that science is advancing is Mm -hmm. now exponential. So, I mean, it really is going to be like, every year now it's going to advance. um, Right. And it's going to affect affect employment, um, you know, so we're not really sure how this is going to play out, but it, you know, this is not going to be the end of this issue. Um, Again, I don't really have a great answer. It's like, we need to shorten the work, Week and a work day without loss of pay. Um, yeah. But interesting enough, I mean, I think more unions are starting to think about this. You know, mm-hmm. just yesterday, the president of the United Auto Workers gave kind of a press conference about their upcoming negotiations. And he said, you know, back in the 1930s, the United Auto Workers president was advocating for a 32 hour work week. And he said, mm-hmm. I think we need to start seriously considering those kinds of ideas, again, um, you know, now and and in the future. Um, But yeah, I mean, this issue is not going away.
0: Yeah, I mean, and it's also interesting, because like, on the one hand, like some of this automation, or, you know, some of these advances in artificial intelligence might mean that you can get more work done, more efficiently, but I think like the idea that some of these advances fully obviate the value and need for human labor is like a misunderstanding. And I think sometimes it's like used as a tool to undervalue labor. So it's like we still need somebody there monitoring this machine or we still see needs somebody looking at this AI generated script. But instead of paying them what we would have paid somebody who had a writing staff job, now we're going to call it some other level, like lower level thing, and we're going to pay them less. And, um, you know, so I think that that sometimes this is used to um, try to to, to shift jobs from a skilled to unskilled category and then undervalue them or have, you know, rotating part-time people instead of giving people mm-hmm. full-time stable work. So it kind of lays the groundwork for all of these ways of undervaluing people's time. Even if people are still dedicating the, you still need a worker there for a similar amount of time to do the thing. It just kind of gives the excuse that you don't need right. to pay them as much.
2: Yeah. And I think, I mean, not being an artist, I'm ca- kind of talking out of my ass here, but I mm-hmm. think like, I think it also could take on different connotations between artistic work and non-artistic work. So, you mm-hmm. know, again, in my eyes, like, if we can figure out a way to get the machines to do like drudgery, yeah, as long as it doesn't displace people, that's good. But mm-hmm. like, I, th- you know, I write a little bit and it's sort of like, I kind of want to write, I want to do the human work of writing and like, I want you know I think musicians like I want to play the instrument you know yeah, yeah. and it's sort of like it feels to me like AI should have way less of a role in artistic mm-hmm. endeavors than in like you know manual labor.
0: Yeah. Um, agreed. Um, so let's see. Um. Is there anything else, Paul, that you would like our listeners to know about labor organization in the U.S. or any uh, common misconceptions about unions or strikes that uh, you'd like to speak to?
2: Um, yeah, you know, I mean, we covered one. I was already thinking about just sort of its connection to racial mm-hmm. justice. Um, but I just kind of, you know, want to highlight again. And, you know, one kind of fascinating thing that ties things together, I was going to mention with automation, like. You know, you'll find there's a great book. Um, it's a collection of Martin Luther King Jr.'s speeches to unions in the '50s and '60s, mm. and he is like obsessed with automation. And same thing with like Bayard Rustin, a other civil rights leaders. And you may think like why Why are they so obsessed with automation in the '50s and '60s? But they what they realized was, you know, many black workers um, came into so called unskilled positions later because of discrimination. And they realized that automation means that the black workers are going to be the first to lose their jobs. Mm -hmm. And they saw a very direct connection to like the issues you were seeing in in inner cities. And in that time in the sixties, there were, you know, the urban riots happening and they actually, they thought automation was the cause of that. And they're like, you know, automation is going to kind of eliminate the so-called unskilled workers who are disproportionately black and Brown first. And that's creating this issue in our inner cities and sort of thing. So, you know, I think all these things are really just kind of connected in one thing. And I think, you know, Mm -hmm. again, especially this automation issue, like we really should be thinking about this in connection about what's going on in our cities and, you know, in labor right now, um, so, yeah, I guess that's the final point is just yeah. like, try to think yeah. about these things as a totality.
0: Right. And I'll say to like tie it back to the Hollywood strikes right now um, in our conversations with um, we talked to Justin Chains and Frankie Butler, who are with the WGA. And we also talked with Michael Chernes, who is part of the SAG-AFTRA union. And all of them made the point that one of the reasons that these labor protections are so important for their guilds is because um the AMPTP has uh, is effectively moving towards the industry is moving towards a system where only the most successful um there's 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 fewer stable jobs and they're only available to the most successful people in their guilds who have longer track records and what that mm-hmm. is doing is effectively excluding you know new voices who are women who are people of color who represent different gender identities who represent different backgrounds. And like, unless you have a, unless you have a a reasonable job that somebody can live off of, it's going to be something that is not a realistic option unless you come from a tremendous amount of privilege. So, you know, making work, Fair and you know mm-hmm. making these viable livings is really important for you know increasing the you know diversity and equity in our labor forces and when it comes to art when it comes to Hollywood that's increasing the that's in that's enriching our art that's like it, enriching our, our our media and representation and uh, you know making. More interesting stories, um, more compelling performances, um, creating pathways for new people to get involved.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Um, Great. Well, uh, thank you so much for joining me, Paul. I've really enjoyed getting to have this conversation with you. How can our listeners keep up with what what you're up to and follow what you're doing on social media or anywhere else?
2: Yeah, well, I... You know, I write for Jackman Magazine, mm-hmm. um, jackmanmag.com. I'm on Twitter at Paul underscore
0: I don't know if it's called Preska. Twitter anymore, Paul. Oh, but, yeah. yeah.
2: X. <laughs> I like, I haven't updated the app and I just, oh, don't, I wow. don't want to because yeah, I'm like. Yeah,
0: don't do it. No. Yeah.
2: So, <laughs> um, but I'm on X or Twitter mm-hmm, or whatever that um, mm-hmm. Paul underscore, underscore Prescott um, mm-hmm. write for Jackman Magazine. So you can follow me there.
0: Great, great. And if, um, do you have any plugs for any organizations or causes that you'd like to draw attention to?
2: Yeah, well, you know, I think what's jumping out to me is, um, a, an organization and magazine called labor notes. You can go on mm. labornotes.org. Um, they're an online and paper magazine. Um, so they help, they just have great up-to-date news on all things, labor um, you know, you can donate to subscribe to them. But I know they've definitely been following the WGA and um, Screen Actors Guild. Uh, but, yeah, they're a great organization that I think has kind of been a, a important network in this, like, latest labor upsurge.
0: Fantastic. Um, great. Well, thanks again, Paul.
2: Yeah. Thanks so much for having me.